All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Taxes. We are told that they are the price we pay for civilization, but they could just be the price we pay for really bloated and crappy government. We're going to be discussing the whole concept of taxes today, especially that dreaded narrative of, are you paying your fair share? Because it turns out that if you talk to AOC or Bernie Sanders, or Elizabeth Warren, we're never paying our fair share and they always need more. But if you stick with us today on this podcast, we're actually going to give you the arguments you need to be able to confront this debate. So we're going to be talking about that and more. We're going to go over some headlines and we're also going to move into a new uh, version called our speakeasy portion. And you never know what you're going to learn. You stick around for the, uh, the speakeasy session of the show. So um, all that and more coming up on this episode of making the argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. And we want to thank you for joining us today on the show. If you're watching, you can see that we have a new studio. It's pretty great. And all the credit, we have to give the credit to Tina Freitas. For building, you know, putting the, getting the walls together, the table, it all looks fantastic. But if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that here. If you're watching on audio, thank you as well. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. And drop a comment on the YouTube channel for what you think of the new format. All right, that sounds good because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed that he gave all the credit to Tina. I mean, I, I think I carried, I carried this somewhere. You lifted a few heavy things. I did lift me. a few heavy things, but... In order to get into this properly, let's go around the room because, again, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that we don't always have a lot of guests, but now we have some permanent people that are coming on in order to help with the show. We're really excited about that. First and foremost, my lovely and beautiful wife, former state Senate candidate, homeschool aficionado, and amateur beekeeper, Tina Freitas. Ah, hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> then we also have our resident historian, and uh, probably, I would argue that within the last five years, probably the most accurate prognosticator of election outcomes, Christian Hines. Thank you. I still got last year's wrong, though, off by 0.05%. How humble. What a loser. 0.05%. You know what? We expect better out of you, Christian. And, uh, of course, we also have our producer, not only of Making the Argument, but of the Y Minutes of numerous other uh, highly successful programs, Nicholas Hamilton. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, you had to be here. You're the producer. Nick, how many times do we have to go over this? All right. So that's our, uh, that's the crew. That's the new crew that we have here on making the argument. We're actually really excited about this. Are we? Well, I don't know. I am. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. He's just happy he doesn't <laughs> have to be alone. All right. So uh, let's go to our first topic now. Well, we, a lot going on in the news this week. I think number one that everybody's looking at is Elon Musk taking over Twitter and the WAPO saying that this might be bad for free speech. So the WAPO is slang for the Washington Post for all of you who are, are not up to date on the, the latest 
in, uh, you know, DC media slang, but yeah, Washington post who's, um, who's masthead or is I'm going to let, I'm not going to steal Christian center, but their masthead is democracy dies in darkness. Uh, or as Christian likes to say, not their masthead, their, their mission statement, their mission statement. Yeah. They actually changed it to that. I think when Donald Trump got elected, they did, it was like 2017, like right after he came into office, they, they decided to slap on all of their, their websites and articles and everything. The, the tagline democracy dies in darkness. Well, and they're, they're apparently very upset on all of our behalf. Uh, they're, they're suddenly incredibly concerned about free speech now that Elon Musk has bought 9.2% of Twitter. Now, interestingly enough, they were not as concerned about Jeff Bezos just completely buying the Washington Post. But, you know, Elon Musk has 9.2% of Twitter and now they're, they're just losing their minds over there at the WAPO. So is, does he represent a, a threat to freedom of speech? I think they don't understand what free speech is. It's the speech that the government pays for, right? That's that's the free speech. Because <laughs> it's government-funded speech? Yeah, it's government-funded speech. You have a right to government-funded free speech. No, I, I just I think it's ridiculous. I mean, obviously, this caused a firestorm when Elon Musk one day woke up and said, should I buy some Twitter? And then two days later was the like majority shareholder. Not majority, largest. Well, largest. largest, sorry, yeah. largest shareholder. I meant majority of all the shareholders. Yeah. But yeah, he's, he's the largest He's got something shareholder. like three times as many shares as Jack Dorsey, the previous CEO. Well, I think and that's incredible. I think most people, when they saw that he bought 9.2%, they're like, well, what can he do with 9.2%? But as you were pointing out, uh, quite a bit, actually, if, if you are, again, if you have the largest amount of shares, that gives you a lot of power on the board. Well, I mean, that's why they appointed him. They kind of had to at that point. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is that obviously, you know, you're going to have a lot of people saying, oh, well, 9.2%, that's nothing. That's like third party status if you're talking about elections. But it, it depends on what sort of coalition he can end up building around that. I mean, Dorsey exerted a tremendous amount of influence over Twitter for many years. He mm -hmm. was eventually, you know, he did eventually leave. Right. But for many years, he ran the company and, you know, he controlled less than 10 percent. Yeah. So, it, I mean, you know, for example, Musk doesn't own outright a majority of Tesla shares, I yeah. believe. So yeah. it it's not that, you know, oh, well, if you don't have 51 percent, then you don't have any control over it. I mean, the current CEO doesn't have 51 percent. So, oh, yeah. no, not even I think that there's a lot that Elon could end up doing. It's it's all about, you know, whether or not he can he can actually leverage that in a positive direction. I do direction. love the, fir the first thing he wanted to do was uh, the add the button. edit button, which everybody loves, <laughs> yeah. um, except for there's a few detractors because they want, uh, they want whatever you say to be there forever. And I well, just kind of look at that and go, have you ever heard of a screenshot? Well, I mean, that way, that way they can be, that way they can dig it up like 20 years later and ruin your career because of something you said, you know, in gym class when you were, but ordinary people just want to be able to correct typos. Yeah, that's yeah. that's, that's it. Really, well, and, and this actually is, this has been part of a larger debate with respect to the whole how should conservatives respond to big tech censorship? And there's some conservatives that made the whole argument of, well, we need the government to be more involved. Like, oh, yeah, because if you don't like it with, you know, Jack Dorsey, you're going to love it when it's Nancy Pelosi. And, but there was other people bringing up a good argument that was, okay, well, we tried that. We set up Parler and then Amazon shut down all the servers because they let Donald Trump speak. Well, another free market approach is doing exactly what Elon Musk just did, which is fine. You got a platform. I'll buy a significant share of that platform. And now I'll put you in a position where you got to make some of these changes we're all talking about. And you're already starting to see some of that kind of come to fruition. Well, I'm still stuck over here on the fact that WAPO was pearl clutching over free speech dying. And what's interesting is that 
I mean, Twitter has been known for being in hot water for suppressing free speech. In fact, they've been known for suppressing stories that are that turn out later on to be legitimate stories, legitimate, um, you know, well-documented stories like the Hunter Biden. uh, I was literally about to bring up Hunter Hunter Biden's laptop. And everybody was putting this out there during election season and it was getting suppressed. It was getting people were getting blocked for it. They Mm -hmm. were getting their you know, getting muted. They, they weren't able to uh, continue on it with their Twitter accounts. And so it's just funny because WAPO acts as though Twitter was this bastion of free speech <laughs> yeah. before Elon Musk. When in reality, I mean, I think Christian, Christian said something about this being the biggest war is peace. Uh, I don't yeah, remember Orwellian what you said. Or ignorance is strength. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a very Orwellian headline. But it's I very mean, new speak. Well, and, and, and look, we all make a distinction between freedom of speech as a legal category and then freedom of speech is kind of like a, a social concept, which is to say that, yeah, your freedom of speech enshrined in the Constitution doesn't mean you're, you're free from consequences of your speech on a private platform. Right. But by the same token, the same people on the woke left screaming the loudest about you should be able to say what you want and, and you know, engage in dialogue would immediately shut down anything that wasn't within that, like those woke categories. And again, to your point, they were actually suppressing speech kind of at some points at the behest of the government. When the government is essentially dragging you in for, you know, you know, to, to testify before Congress at the same point that they're highly discouraging you to go against anything the CDC might recommend. Okay. At what point are, are you are seeing this, this, you know, collaboration between social media and the most, the wokest elements of social media and the government. And I, I think people had a lot of legitimate concerns over that. Well, you saw a lot of that during COVID. I can't yeah. remember the polling. Um, there was some polling that was done earlier this year that showed something like close to a majority of Democrats said that they wanted the government to like actively criminalize yeah. what they thought was disinformation related to COVID. And it, so so going back to what you were saying about free speech, I don't think that, that some of the people on the woke left actually supported free speech. I think that they supported their speech. Yeah. And there's a big difference between those two. And now there's somebody that's actively, you know, in, engaging with with Twitter. I, I mean, Musk said that he viewed Twitter as a de facto um, public forum. And Tell I mean, I think that's the whole reason that he bought into the company is because he actually wants to treat both sides equally. Yeah, and yeah. the left is just not interested in treating both sides equally. And I mean, you're seeing it in places like Silicon Valley. I mean, all of those companies that are headquartered over there, almost every single one of them has overwhelming left-wing bias. Overwhelming. It's not even, they don't even pretend to be fair at this point. Well, we're talking about Elon Musk, who he gets into uh, scuffles with every side of the argument because he calls himself a free speech absolutist. Mm -hmm. So everyone gets free speech, even the speech that you don't necessarily like. And- I, I tend to agree with him, and I think I think one of the reasons we are in this position where the left likes to pretend that they're on the side of free speech while at the same time suppressing the speech of others is because there have been times in the past where the conservatives have tried to stop certain yeah, forms no, that's of true. free speech that they didn't like, and I just feel like it is so such a better position to be in to want the free speech for everyone, even if it's not what you even if you don't care for it, it, because you don't have the freedom. One of your inherent rights is not, oh, I have a right not to be offended. You're going to be offended sometimes. That's that's one of the consequences of free speech, but it's better to stay free 
than, than to have this because one side that's in power is going to suppress it. I mean, if one side suppresses it, then the other side's going to suppress it when they're in power. And it's just better it's to a leave race it to open. The bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it could be. Yeah. I mean, but but Musk has kind of taken arrows before. I mean, I re- I can't remember her name. I remember that state legislator in California that was like tweeting all this stuff like F Elon Musk and yeah. he's exploiting his workers. And then he replied, messaged received. And then it was like two weeks later he announced he was moving to Texas. <laughs> I love that. That was so great. That was a boss move. I love that. Well, I mean, even you, Nick, have seen free ha- had free speech problems on various platforms like TikTok. Yeah. But what I find to be so interesting is that the easiest way to not get banned is to be as woke as possible. Yeah, it's the general, uh, you know, thoughts which are those which get banned and suppressed. And I think people are tired of it. Yeah, on Twitter, and and I hope that Elon is going to be able to come in here and fix part of the problem. But I think people are tired of many things. And mm-hmm. you know, Christian, you were discussing earlier this week with me about you know people in New York City and Chicago and San Diego being tired of the big government policies and woke policies there. Love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, so there was a report published by the U.S. Census Bureau, I think it was actually two weeks today, um, on March 24th, and basically it was an update on population figures, and mm-hmm. what they found was astounding. It was, so for the vast majority of American history, um, what, 200 and something years, the trend has always been, always been rural less populated areas, people moving from those locations to urban or suburban settings. Yeah. And then post-World War II, you had some of the cities like Detroit emptied out and the suburbs around it and like Oakland County blew up. But overall, people have moved from rural settings to urban or suburban settings for 200 years. And what happened in the last, literally, it was 12 months. It was over 12 months. You could argue it, could, it goes back to the beginning of the pandemic. So maybe 24 months. Over the last 24 months, you have seen a mass exodus out of most but not all of America's large metropolitan areas, Mm -hmm. particularly the ones that are usually in single-party states. California and New York lead the way. Um, In fact, the number one population loss of any county in the entire country was Los Angeles County. Number two was Manhattan. Um, Manhattan lost almost 7% of its population in, in 12 months. We actually just did a one. Yeah, well, that's – and and the reason why that's so incredible is because you you hear 7% – um, you have to understand 7% is a decade's worth of growth in Manhattan wiped out in 12 months. It's almost two decades, actually. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, you, you got to, and, and when we're talking about Manhattan, we're talking about, I mean, what, what, is, what's the population number for Manhattan? Uh, Manhattan, what, well, now it's just under 1.6 million. Okay. It was almost 1.7 so, million. But they lost, like New York City lost like over 300,000 people, right? Or was well, it New yeah. York State? Well, it was kind of synonymous. New York City lost about 3% of its population, yeah. just over. New York State lost over 300,000 residents. California yeah. lost, I believe, over 200,000. And this is in 12 months. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, that's the part that people need to really focus in on, okay? We're, we're not talking about a gradual loss of 7% over... T- we're talking about, again, almost two decades of population growth wiped out in 12 months. And you can't chalk that up to the pandemic because yeah. there, there weren't... Now, you, you can certainly claim that all right, when we have a global pandemic where something is highly contagious, people move out of urban area. I get that, right? But people moved out and then they either stayed out or they waited, they they made it through the pandemic and then decided to leave because they just got tired of the garbage. And and you didn't just see that in New York, you saw that in Los Angeles, you see that in the Bay Area, and there's a there's a number of factors that go into this and and most of them are politically related. The question that I have, and I think the question a lot of people in Texas and Florida have, 
is are the people leaving New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, and going for greener pastures, do they recognize why they're leaving and why they're picking the places that they're coming to? Because this isn't just people retiring to warmer climates, right? These are people that are uprooting their families, uprooting their businesses, and, and moving to places that are not going to tax, regulate, you know, and, and micromanage their lives. Are they going to vote that way when they get there? And that's, I mean, it remains to be seen, but. It depends on where you're looking at. So like my family, yeah. for example, most of them moved down to South Florida on my, um, on my mother, uh, on, on my father's side, my aunt, uh, just moved from Burbank to West Palm beach. Um, she's a diehard Republican though. Um, so like Florida, South Florida is getting redder because places like Palm Beach are blowing up with conservatives that are moving there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the voting trends in Dallas and in Austin are in, you know, indicative. Oh, Austin of is just, I mean. Well, that's where all the Silicon Valley companies yeah. are locating to. Yeah. So like, you know, I, I was just, we were just talking earlier about, you know, Elon Musk moving from Silicon Valley to Texas. He moved to Austin. Tesla moved its headquarters to Austin. Well, just outside. Just outside so yes. that Austin couldn't have any say <laughs> yeah. over it, which I also thought was great. But the entire <laughs> conversation that is taking place in Silicon Valley right now, in Manhattan right now, in Chicago right now, is entirely centered around why are we still here? Yeah. Because the taxes are crushing, the regulations are crushing, the crime rate is through the roof. Well, You're talking about like 80s level crime rates in well, some of the It begs the question whether or not there is any self-awareness whatsoever in, I mean, these people have voted these policies in. They have created the environment they're trying to flee from. And do they realize this? Do they have any clue? And when I look at Austin, I would say no. They mm -hmm. don't realize it. This is the locust effect. And just like Nick said. <laughs> I got in so much trouble for saying that. way. like, you're calling people. No, I'm saying that when, when yeah. somebody goes from one, when somebody goes to a particular area, establishes their policies, gets everything they like, and then leaves because they don't find it conducive to living anymore. And then they go somewhere else where there's greener pastures and do the exact same thing. At some point, there it's should be the a little bit of yeah, a little bit of introspection. Might it's be not order. that people are locusts. No, it's no. That the policies, the policies. Yes. that right. are being imposed in states like California and yes. New York. Right. Those but the fact that they can't even see that they're the ones that implemented this policy and they had all these beautiful intentions and they were so excited that they were, you know, this wonderful woke company that was going to do mm. wonderful things for their employees and and wonderful things for their area. And it turns out that their intentions did not, what they did with their wonderful intentions did not yield the results they were looking for. And instead of changing what it, whatever policy it is because they realized that it didn't work, instead they think, oh, well, I'm just going to go somewhere that well, I haven't destroyed yet. And so here, here's where I hold out some hope, right? Because again, I think, I think a lot of the people that are moving right now um, are, are, and again, we know a lot of people in California that are leaving and they're leaving because of the politics. I mean, that's one of the things that's different because every time this happens, pundits always come forward and they try to leverage it for whatever they possibly can. They're doing more and more where they're actually asking people, why are you leaving? And they're saying things like, I can't afford the housing prices and I'm getting taxed to death. But I think that what you're seeing in places like New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles, specific Cook County is another example, but a little bit differently. It's the people that are in those areas and they are paying, like go look at the tax rates that you're paying in Los Angeles versus, you know, someplace in Texas, Tennessee, right? Or, or Tennessee, or, yeah. because they're not just paying higher taxes. They're not just paying significantly higher taxes. 
They then walk outside and there's a homeless person defecating outside of their shop. And when they call the police to come and deal with it, nobody shows up. And then they're told that they're bigots. And they're like, wait a second. The whole, the whole argument behind I'm going to pay more taxes and I'm going to be subjected to more regulations was you're going to provide me a safe environment to do business and to raise my family. And I'm getting all the taxes, I'm getting all the regulations, but I'm getting none of what are supposed to be the results from those things. Well, because half these people have also pushed to defund the police. <laughs> so, well, I, again, I, I don't know that we can make that determination from the people that are, are making an active decision to leave. But I, I again, policy that, that remains to be seen, right? That remains to be seen because you're right. If all of a sudden we're seeing, and, and look, Austin does have a huge homelessness problem right now. Because they're dealing with certain, they're dealing with the same sort of policy and, and political philosophy that they had in Los Angeles. And, and what we're all desperately hoping is that at some point people make the connection that, look, it, it wasn't the area. It wasn't the particular person in charge. These policies produce these results no matter where you go across space and time, period. I mean, I think you've, you've nailed it on the head there. The reason that, you know, that people are leaving you know, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, the Bay Area, L.A., Oakland, Chicago, New York. They're the, re the reason that they're leaving these places, it, it's it's obvious that it's the taxes. It's, it's, it's obvious that it's the taxes and it's the crime. The quality of life has dropped. And when you're paying a 13% income tax at the state level in California, and by the way, New York actually raised their income taxes yeah. last year. Yeah. So when you're paying a 13% income tax and you're being promised – by the politicians that run these states, oh, we're going to have all these public services, you know, your contribution, your 13% taxes are going to be able to fund all these amazing public services. And then, like you said, you walk outside and your store is has been vandalized. I mean, mm -hmm. it's getting to the point now where, where people park their cars to go shopping in San Francisco, the stores that haven't been broken into and had all their things stolen from them. <laughs> when, they're, when they're parking their cars in San Francisco, they're leaving the doors open and the trunk open. So that way nobody will break the windows when they break into the car because mm -hmm. they're going to get broken into one way or another. And again, when you're paying 13% income taxes at the state level, that's not even counting the federal yeah. government. And and you're you're seeing the crime rate go through the roof and the quality of life just plummet. You've got to be thinking, why am I paying this? Yeah, what why why not move to when a state? When there's alternatives. Yeah, why yeah. not move to a state that has no income tax like Florida? And now well, people it's, it's are starting, oh, sorry, people are starting to do some of these, uh, trying to resolve some of these problems themselves. I don't know if any of you guys saw the headline of the, the guy with the truck in I New Orleans, Louis, Louisiana. Yeah. And he set up a flat, rigged a flashbang inside of his truck because he had had his window <laughs> broken in his truck, I think, nine times before this. This was the ninth time, I think, they broke the window. And you see it on the camera, this guy just, they pull up, he jumps out just gleefully pops the window, starts climbing in, and all of a sudden you see a big flash and he goes running. I'm I mean by, by the way, off. by the way, as someone that knows a little something about flashbang grenades, you you've got to be seriously pissed to rig up your own car with a flashbang because that's gonna do some damage to your car. That that is a person that has gotten to a point where it's like, I don't care if the entire interior of my car gets jacked up. The next person that does this is gonna feel some pain. That's what yeah. that is. Well, he said he didn't want to cause injury yeah. or he didn't want the person to die, yeah. but he definitely wanted to send a message and yeah. cause them to have their ears ring for a while. Yeah. So while they thought about what they did, I'm sure they just went to the next car. 
Well, it's pretty clear to me that the politicians and the folks that are leaving, moving to Texas and Tennessee and these other states have different definitions of what a fair share is mm. when it comes to taxes. What a great transition <laughs> right there. <laughs> so, yeah, for sorry, so Nick, I, w- I want to move real quick yeah. into our argument of the day being fair share. Uh, I've got a couple questions and I'm going to lay some parameters around these. We've got three of them. The first one is assuming that some taxes are actually legitimate because we know there are all these programs in these states. Yep, stop right there. <laughs> yeah, Christian's already pissed that you suggested the taxes could be could be legitimate. We can but skip uh, today's whole segment. Taxes are illegitimate. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. All right, but assuming, assuming, assuming in some that world, some taxes are actually legitimate, all right. what is a fair share? Well, okay, so this part always makes me mad, and I always tell people whenever somebody says, you know, the rich need to pay their fair share, the before you argue with them on anything, the first thing you should do is ask what constitutes fair, not even a fair share. What constitutes fair? Because when we talk about this topic, if we were to talk about fairness and anything else, like fairness in taking a test or on a sports team, or what would be fair if we we're going to all go to, to dinner, right? And, and split the check. We, we would all have this kind of natural inclination to know that, okay, yeah, if we all go to dinner, and I order a salad and you order lobster and we split the check, that's not fair to me. I'm paying more, right? But if you pay for you and I pay for me, then we both say, okay, that, that was fair. We both put in, we both contributed to what we took out and there was an equilibrium there. So we, we, we paid as much as we were taking out. That seems to be, in, in most transactions, what's considered kind of like the base level of fairness. Now, I think that makes sense for taxes too. You, you pay taxes on what you consume. It, it, it's the idea that, okay, again, going with the idea that there's legitimate functions of government, and so taxes are raised in order to pay for those legitimate functions. Let's assume for a second that we all agree that, okay, the police are a legitimate function. Let's assume that we think the court system. Let's even go so far as to assume that some infrastructure. So, okay. It really depends on how libertarian you are, though, because it, it there does. are a lot of libertarians that. I know, I know. No, we're just absolutely saying. Absolutely not. We're saying for argument's sake. So the idea would be that, okay. If I'm paying a sales tax, well, then theoretically that involves some sort of transaction. And so you probably used roads in order to get products and service to market, get customers to places. You relied on, you know, a legal system, which would allow you to adjudicate differences in a peaceful manner if you had, you know, contract violations or something like that. So when I pay that, I pay that sales tax, you know, I'm contributing to the system that is helping facilitate the exchange, right? That's, that's how that argument goes. But more and more, the argument has been like, well, no, fair is just you have more, I have less, so you should pay more. And, and on its face, there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that would say, well, yeah, if you have more, you should pay more. And my question is, is okay, you might be able to argue that from a purely practical standpoint. What makes that fair in the purest sense of that word? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing makes that fair. I'm sorry, but, you know, you've, you've got a situation where uh, – I guess I guess what it is is it comes from this mindset of okay this person was born with with just a blessed life they're a charmed life and everything's been easy for them and now they have everything and this other person has a not charmed life and it's through no fault of their own and they have nothing and that's that's what it seems like they assume at the baseline yeah. um but that's 
that's really untrue. I mean, most, uh, isn't it, what's the, what's the stat on millionaires? How many are first generation millionaires? It's something, like, it's, it it's something like between 60 to 70% of Americans are for millionaires are first generation. Well, there's this mental holdover from when we had the aristocracy and nobility and things like that, where it, it went through the bloodline. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so people just assume that that's still how wealth works. And it, isn't. Well, and I, I would be far more comfortable, like if someone wanted to say, okay, Nick, I get it. It's not fair, but it, it's practical that, you know, hey, if you make more money, you're going to pay more. In I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but I would at least appreciate that, okay, you're, you're not making a practical at, at argument. At be honest. You're making a practical <laughs> argument. What I don't like is that, again, fair in every other realm that we typically deal in is you contribute at least as much as what you get out of something. And if you do that, then that's fair. And if anything over that, you're now being generous. But that's not well, how it's actually treated in this conversation. How many people get a lot more out of this system than they ever put in? That's not fair either. And and there's two definitions of fair that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. It's it's a you know trick of the hand. Really, you have the actual definition of fair, which I, I would say is more in line with with justice. And, and then you have the political definition of fair. Well, because the political definition of fair is fair is whatever I say it is. Yes. Well, I mean, that's that, every, that, that's everything they, political is like that right now. I mean, a woman's whatever some people say a woman is. So, But like what I mean by that is, is that like, for example, in New York State, you know, the, the mantra that is coming out of the state legislature there and, you know, um, in the city government in New York is still the rich are not paying their fair share, despite the fact that it's something like 50 percent of all of the public funding that New York City uses are paid by 1% of the population. Yeah, who who pays for all of that funding? Oh, it's, it's I mean, it's the wealthy. <laughs> I mean, th this is, so this kind of goes into like the other point of, right, who is, so if, if you can, if you can agree that, like you said, there's an actual definition of fair, which is usually associated with, I, I contribute as much as I take out. That's the fairness level. And then there's the political definition of fair is whatever politician needs to say in order to manipulate you to give them more power in order to take from people, right? But here's what I find fascinating is that it would be one thing if we were living in a system where it was a lot closer to the whole idea of I, I pay at least as much as I take out. That is not the system that we're living in. Not even close. We, we, have, a, we have an incredibly progressive tax. So I was, I was looking this up and it was the whole concept of, and, and again, people say, well, why are you taking all this time to defend the rich? Like, dude, I ain't rich. But I do like the idea of truth. I How do about like intellectual honesty. I, Let's just go with that. So here, here's what it comes down to. So here's the income groups. All right. So the top 1% of the country uh, control 21% of the income, right? But their share of all income taxes paid is around 40%. So there was this argument that, well, of course, to pay more, they control all the wealth. It's like, well, okay, wait a second. If they control 21%, then you would think fair would be they'd have to contribute 21%. And, and even then there's some issues with fairness because at that point, it's no longer about contri contribution and taking in. You're just saying fair is you make this much, so you got to pay this much, which that even has it's problems. It's a progressive, yeah. Yeah, that that's even, even has problems. But that's not even what's going on. If you control 21% of the wealth and you're paying 40% of the taxes, I would think any reasonable person would look at that and be like, okay, yeah, no, they're, they're actually paying above and beyond what their, quote, fair share is when we look at the overall tax rate. Uh, and again, that is why people are leaving. They So the mass exodus that is taking place in the Bay Area, LA, and New York, yeah. I would wager that a good chunk of the people that are moving might not 
actually be actively thinking, man, I'm really moving because the politics here is just terrible. They're moving because they're seeing the bills yeah. and they're think and they're seeing the surging crime rate yeah. and the complete absence of the public services that they have been promised that they would be receiving in exchange for making those, mm-hmm. those tax payments. And they're adding those three factors up and they're saying, well, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm leaving. I, it is too expensive. The quality of life is too bad. The crime rate is too bad. And so it, I, I think that, that, that on some base level, people understand exactly what you're saying, Nick. But I would wager that they're not necessarily making that political connection, at least at the moment. Well, no, I, I think that's I think that's accurate. But I, I think the other thing that is amazing to me is the amount of mental gymnastics that is used because th- this has become a purely populist argument, which is completely left wing separ- populist, left wing left wing populist argument that's completely separated from reality. And I saw this general assembly session because we were arguing about giving tax cuts. Well, we were making the argument that well, you can't really give a tax cut to someone that is not a net taxpayer because now you're just talking about another transfer payment. And it's and government it, spending. It's government spending, right? A transfer payment is essentially when the government taxes money and then gives it to somebody else based off of like a welfare program or whatever it is. And what was fascinating to me was I started looking not only at who's all paying taxes, right? Because you can make the argument, well, everyone pays taxes because everyone fills out a federal tax form. Everyone pays sales taxes. What shocked me was when you started looking at the transfer payments. And that's where I started to realize that, yes, everybody might pay, like, so for in Virginia state income tax, right? Even in the lowest bracket, you're paying, um, you know, some percentage. And so my Democrat colleague was arguing that, well, this person's paying a higher percentage of their income. So yeah, they only made $20,000, but they paid $3,000 in taxes. Here's what they weren't showing you on that cute little chart they had. They didn't include transfer payments. So they might've been paying $3,000 in taxes, but when you look at all the government money that was coming directly to them, now all of a sudden that was anywhere as high as $7,000 to $17,000. So yeah, you paid $3,000, but you got $7,000 back or $10,000 back or $15,000 back, but she didn't count that as income. So here's the crazy part. This is the part you got to wrap your mind around because this is important. If we did exactly what she wanted, she holds up her chart. She says, this person's income was $20,000 and they're not getting any tax cut. And she didn't include the transfer payments. We could have given her everything she was asking for this year. And she could have showed up next year with the exact same chart and said, well, look, they only had 20,000 worth of income. Because she's not counting the transfer payments. What about the transfer payments? And this is the part that pisses so many people off because now you're saying, wait a second, you asked me to pay all these additional taxes in order to help the poor. A lot of people said, I agreed with paying those additional taxes to help the poor. But now when you're keeping score, you don't include any of what we paid as, as part of their income, because you're sure as hell counting my income oh, when I, wait a second, you're sure as hell counting my income when I get a promotion or I work extra hours or I, I sell some property that I bought and saved for a rainy or, day. Or how about this? Talk about calling something income that's not income. I think we need to start shedding more light on situations like this. My parents lost absolutely everything in the Paradise Fires in California. They lost two homes and their livelihood all of their ability, I mean, everything was gone, leveled to the ground. Yeah. When they got an insurance payment, the government was right there to tax them on the insurance payment 
to try Gosh. to rebuild their life. Mm-hmm. And the government was there with their handout to take money from them because it looked like income. And these are people who are victims of a massive loss. The government didn't didn't uh, partake in the loss with them, mm-hmm. but they sure partook in any transfer of funds on the other side of it. And the the payment the the payment for the insurance wasn't even enough to rebuild a home on in the first place. And then the government took I think it was thirty percent, thirty percent. Yeah, that's, so that's I think we need to start talking about that a little bit more. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. But I, I think that's what's, that is what has made so many people upset is that even, even when they agree with the progressive tax system, even when they agree with paying more, and then it comes time for a tax break, and then some, a politician gets up and says, and, you know, well, this person only made 20000 No, they only earned 20000 through their own labor. They received more money through government taxes, and then you don't count that as income. But again, you count everything I do or everything somebody else does within the productive you know, sector of the marketplace, you count that as income, there is something seriously wrong about that kind of political math. So how do we respond to one of the most common arguments that the rich people don't pay their fair share or don't pay taxes? I think, I think the biggest misconception here, and Christian might have a different opinion on this, I think the biggest misconception between the argument that you hear like, oh, Warren Buffett pays less in taxes than his secretary. No, he doesn't. That's garbage. Um, there, there are two different things that are going on right here. And usually when this argument is made, there's a general difference between how income is taxed versus how capital gains is taxed. Now, a lot of people, um, and you see this with Jeff Bezos saying, oh my gosh, he's the CEO of Amazon, but he you know, only makes this much in income. Oh, well, it's because he's avoiding taxes. Okay, you could say that. Or no, he's making his wealth based off of you know dividend payments or selling stock or things like that, and that's taxed differently. Here's the reason why that is taxed at a lower rate than income. So when you're getting a paycheck for doing something, right? There, there's like a contract there. I get paid to do a job. I'm going to get that money. The government taxes it at a, at a certain rate based off of how much you make, right? So if you make less, you get less income tax. If you make more, you get more income tax. Capital gains, though, is when I've made income. I've been taxed at the full rate for that income. Then I take a portion of that money and I reinvest it in another company. So I've I've reinvested the money that I've already been taxed on into another company in order to help those people and help myself, right, to make a profit. And then finally, when I get the dividend checked or when I sell the stock, I get taxed again. So that's the proper way to think about is capital gains is actually double taxation. But you've got all these politicians running around pretending as if that never took place. And for someone that doesn't understand that distinction, they look at it as, oh, well, these guys are getting over. And, and, it, and it's even worse than that. But, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's my take on it. I mean, I think, I think that's correct. It, it, and, and another component is capital gains tax. Well, first off, I don't think they should exist, but if they do exist, they, they have to be at a lower rate than income because it is a risky investment. You're not guaranteed. There's a chance that if I, if I buy a, 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 you know, if Elon Musk buys 9.2% of Twitter, there's a chance that everything, you know, blows up in his face and Twitter goes bankrupt and he loses everything. Mm -hmm. If he took all of that money and he stuffed it under his mattress 
I mean, I suppose unless somebody lights fire to the mattress, there's no chance that that money's going to blow up. Now he'll, he'll lose fit. it through inflation. Yeah, mattress. he'll lose. He'll lose it through inflation, especially yeah, right yeah. now. He'll lose it through inflation. Yeah. But there is an inherent risk involved in investing, and it's not just in the stock market. It's in starting a business. It's in, in it's property. In putting yes, it's in buying property or buying shares of a company or starting your own business. And, the and being an entrepreneur, none of that risk. There's an inherent risk in engaging in the marketplace. Period. And so gains that are made from that have to be taxed at a lower level because there is far more risk when it comes to investing than it is fulfilling the, the, the contract, uh, uh, um, you know, the, uh, fulfilling, you know, your obligations that you signed in a contract, at, you know, in a, in a regular job. Yeah. Well, You're guaranteed at that point. You could sue your employer if he does yep. not pay you. Yep. If you signed a contract and you're you're being promised fifty thousand a year and you're not being paid that and you're you're upholding your end of the bargain, you can take them to court and force them to pay you. If I buy shares of Twitter and Twitter goes bankrupt tomorrow, I'm the last one that gets paid. Yeah. All the debtors get paid first. Yeah. The shareholders are going to be handed the short end of the stick. And this happens over and yeah. over and over again when companies go under. I think it's funny the founders would have been really shocked at us even having this conversation. Yeah. Because what was it? They originally didn't put anything about an income tax into uh, the Constitution because they were afraid that people would take that as, oh, well, look, we can add an income tax. So they didn't even want to approach the subject because what was it? Who was it? Well, you, you had you had two different arguments. Like at the founding, it was the idea that we're, we're, they were going to raise everything through tariffs. And, and there was there was some other you know, was, nominal that, ways. That wasn't what I meant, though. Um, You're talking about when they added someone the... Someone proposed... When they, oh, added, the 16th when, Amendment. When they added the 16th Amendment to the Constitution in the early 20th century, the argument was, is like, well, we're going to put a cap, and I think it was like a 3%. They won't, the federal government will not be able to charge more than a 3% income tax. And the people that opposed the 16th Amendment said... You can't put that in there. If you put 3%, they'll take all three of it. Because originally it was, this is just going to be a 1% tax on like the wealthiest can Americans. Can you imagine? And so they left it wide open. And the end result now is- yeah, Can you, know, you imagine if our tax rate was only 3%? Oh my gosh. What do y'all think the ideal tax rate or system would be? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, again, assuming that- there are legitimate functions of government, and so far, therefore, you need taxation to raise Do it. A consumer tax. I, I well, I so I tend to I tend to think, and again, let's caveat this: if you add another tax on what we already have, then you're, that's garbage. No. You would have to completely get rid of the federal income tax, and then I think the system that I've heard that I have the least amount of problems with, because that's what this is. It's like, what system do you like? None of it. None of them. All right, but where do I have the least amount of problems with? If they said basically we we're going to do like either either just a sales tax or just what they call a value added tax. That would probably be the easiest to administer. It would be the easiest to pay and long-term it'd probably be the fairest. Now what's fascinating is the moment you talk about a sales tax, like, Oh, that's regressive. You're forcing poor people. Like actually, Rich people most. would pay more in a sales tax. Because the vast majority of transactions take place see. between business to business, yeah. not consumer to business. Yeah. Yes. And the price tag of a yacht is a whole lot more than <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, most it's, other it's, items. You, you would have more progressive results with a sales tax um, than I, I think you do sometimes even with the current system where you have all these breaks and you have all these loopholes and everything right. else. I mean, businesses would be paying a lot more because – at every single transaction when you're getting supplies for your business or when materials for building or things like that, every single point of sale, you'd well, be paying a tax, wouldn't you? Well, no, let's be honest. about. So that's that's more like a VAT tax. That's more like a value added where like each point, whereas the sales tax is mainly just at the, the retail end. No, 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 no. Because there is a 
retail component of mm-hmm. buying things in order to do business to build whatever you need to build on the at no the no end. I, I get that you got to so buy the I, before I can I buy need, the house if, if I need five hundred you know steel rods for whatever I'm building I pay taxes on those rods I know but there's there's a couple different ways that you can arrange that the point I'm making is this we need to be really careful whenever we use this language there's no such thing as a tax a business pays. Taxes are always paid by individuals, period, the end. That's why when the left talks about, we need to raise corporate taxes, it's like, oh, okay, you want to punish workers and shareholders. You want to raise the prices of food that people yeah, are getting at you, the you grocery wanna, store. You want to raise prices of food and you want to punish consumers and shareholders, right? That's what you want to do because there's no corporation paying the tax, right? There's individuals paying taxes. The difference is, is that when you put it on the consumption side, right? When you put it on the sales tax or the VAT side or whatever it is, now you're, you're taxing the person that is ostensibly getting some sort of benefit through the ability to engage in these transactions in a, you know, legally consistent and safe environment, right? As opposed to arbitrarily taxing their income or their property. I mean, at the end of the day, I will agree to almost, not quite, almost any form of, of tax reform that involves eliminating income taxes. Mm-hmm. I think that states like Tennessee, Texas, and Florida are ballooning for a reason, and it's because they don't have any income tax. Yeah. Um, and, and Texas has other taxes that are quite bad. Like yeah. they, they have some some ta- uh, taxes that aren't really great for businesses. Like I think they have like one on, on like gross proceeds or something like that. And Well, yeah. here in Virginia, we have the B-pool tax, which is an absurd tax where you're, you're taxing uh, companies or businesses or individuals on whatever they use to make money. So your computer is going to get taxed multiple times. Like every single year you're getting taxed. Even if your company hasn't made any money yet, which most companies don't in the first couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who decided she was going to start uh, spinning yarn because she had alpaca Mm -hmm. and her mother bought her a spinning wheel um, to spin the yarn. And because she sold the yarn at a farmer's market in Culpeper, uh, the government wanted to tax her on this spinning wheel her mom got her for Christmas. Yeah. I mean, that Beeple tax is is just absurd. And I've even seen uh, some of the assessors will scan through Facebook and see that you got a new tractor and send you a bill. Yeah. And, I mean, that's that's insane. It gets a little creepy. Yeah. Little creepy. And, and we do have a legislator sitting here with us. Nick, can you Yeah, why haven't you gotten rid of this yet? <laughs> I, had, the I, try, I had a bill this year to get rid of the Beeple tax. And somebody described it as, well, the BPL tax is a tax we have for kind of the privilege of running a business. I said, stop right there. The privilege, privilege that of running a business. That doesn't express what is so wrong with this tax that you would, you would, people run businesses in order to provide goods and services for other people that want them to mutual benefit. And we're saying you got to be taxed for that privilege? It may be a privilege to be able to work for a business owner. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Well, look, let's let's wrap this up because we got to move on to our next segment. But it's really important that, again, all of our viewers that are listening to this, so what is, what is the argument you use, right? When somebody is talking to you about this, when you hear a political ad, when your kid comes home from college at Berkeley, what are you saying? Well, the first thing, again, when they come in and they say, oh, the rich don't pay their fair share, we need to raise tax on the road. The first thing you need to ask them is, what do you mean by fair? Because if they can't define that for you, this isn't a serious conversation. Because the moment they say, well, it's it's this, and then all of a sudden that doesn't raise the revenues they want, and they say, well, now a fair share is this. No, 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 no. You either give me a standard by which we can judge what fair is, and then you need to test that standard by how we use that term in every other area of our life. Because as Christian pointed out, they might want to use a political definition of fairness. Tough, it doesn't work that way. So that's step one. Always nail them to the carpet, nail them to the floor on what does fair mean to you? 
right? And then make them express that. And you can usually show the problems that they use. The second thing that you need to attack is this whole idea that the rich don't pay their fair share. I'm sorry. By any standard of fairness that we use in everyday conversation, not only are they paying a higher proportion of what they actually control as far as wealth or a higher proportion of what they control, but they're paying over and above it. And when you take into account transfer payments, and this is really, really important, right? When you take into account transfer payments, right? The poor in the country are generally receive, generally speaking, receiving more from taxes than they're actually paying into it. So if your goal is a progressive tax system, congratulations, you got it. But at some point, and this is the, this is the final point you want to make with them, right? Because if you can demonstrate that even after all the tax breaks, even all after the, the loopholes that they might not like, the rich are still paying a much higher percentage of taxes. The third thing you need to go to is how do you expect to raise the taxes to pay for the things that you want if you're not actually going to be honest about who's paying taxes, the degree that they're paying taxes, and then asking the all-important question of, okay, if you're actually already getting what you claim to want, why isn't it producing the results that you want? Because that actually takes the conversation in a whole new direction where we can actually get away from this whole idea that the government has some sort of inherent right to what you earn and then go into, how are they actually spending what they're already taking? Because if it's not achieving what you think those taxes should be achieving, well, that's a different question. And that's one that should be directed at the politician, not the taxpayer. Hope that helps. All righty. Oh, sorry. One other thing I want to add with this. And every You've time got some right? recommended reading for we, us, right? We got some recommended reading for this. So if you want to learn more about that, there's a couple sites that I, I find that provide really good data. Christian might have some other ones on this as well. Uh, tax Foundation is really good because Tax Foundation doesn't just provide you a, a bunch of data and like academic papers on this. They provide you a lot of charts that are easy to understand. They actually have some courses they'll go through that will explain everything from the different types of taxes you pay, right? You pay taxes on income, you pay taxes on sales, you pay taxes on property. They kind of break all that down and, and describe how it works and what are some of the perverse incentives for some of these systems. Another one is Heritage Foundation. They've done some great work on, on breaking down the federal budget and how your taxes are collected and spent. And then American Enterprise Institute has some of the best charts I've seen on really showing the transfer payments. And I think that's, that's, I can't stress that enough. If you forget everything else we've talked about, understanding the transfer payments are important because every politician that is telling you, oh, look, this person pays a higher percentage of their income. I almost, I will guarantee you they are not including government transfer payments as part of their income. And that is a, that is a horribly intellectually dishonest argument. And really what it is, it's a smack in the face of everyone else that is paying taxes. So Tax Foundation, Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, they all have some great ones. You got any other ones? Uh, Mercatus was. Oh, yeah, Mercatus. Yeah. Mercatus out of George Mason University. They got some good ones as well. All right. So I guess we're moving on to the, uh, the speakeasy portion. I want to hear Tina talk about her bees. What? So I fed my yeah, bees what's this the buzz? morning. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we, can we throw something in him? We've been talking this whole episode about, you know, government regulations and overreach. I'm interested to know if you've learned anything about the bee industry and, like, raising bees of any crazy government regulations. Or if you want to hear about a bunch of authoritarians, we can talk about bee culture, too. Jeez. Oh, let's do it. Uh, the bees themselves. Yes. Right. The, the hive mind. Well... <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, a lot. One of the questions that I get asked um, about my bees is whether or not I participated in the program that Virginia has to provide 
free bees and free hives to people that are willing to keep them. Because one of the issues is that bees, obviously, they're incredible pollinators and we need to have them. They're, they're very important for our environment. And uh, so there is government funding toward a, a trying to save the bees. And I so, didn't vote for it, though. So people, um, people will get their hives for free and they will get their bees for free, but they do have to, I believe there is some government regulation involved in that. Um, and, you know, you do have, uh, you are supposed to call, I can't remember the name of the, the place. But well, look, before I get angry emails talking about what a hypocrite I am, we didn't use any of the government okay, subsidies. Okay, <laughs> so w- my point was, I get asked whether or not I took advantage of that. No, I did not. Um, I have been wanting to keep bees for a really long time. Um, I love honey. I love, I love bees are just incredibly fascinating. I can watch a million bee videos because they're, they're What'd you think of the bee movie? Oh my God. It's horrible. It's absolutely, the bee movie. Okay. I won't get off on this tangent. The bit, the bee movie is, is awful. Um, well, okay, wait a second. No, no, no. I want you to explain okay, hold on. why it's awful. Okay, first first I will say I got my hives for Christmas. Yeah. They Nick got me my hives for Christmas and I got my bees from Bita Loca downtown in Culpeper. Um and uh, Felicia is the one who who provided my first grouping yeah. of bees. I get a second I get a, a five nuke um, batch of bees at the end of April from another local beekeeper as well. Anyway, uh, I'm starting with two hives. Hopefully we are successful. But the bee movie is terrible because if you know anything about bees, you know that the boy bee that's running around, you know, doing all this stuff doesn't exist. Uh, every, everybody who works in a hive is female. It, they are all female. <laughs> the males are what we call drones. And the only thing drones do, they don't even have a stinger. They don't defend anything. They don't go gather food. They don't have the little pollen baskets on their legs to go. They don't do anything. They go up and they buzz around the tops of the treetops looking for a virgin queen to mate with. <laughs> and that is his entire purpose. And so that literally he eats he poops and he looks for a queen to mate with. Can I just say that would have made a horrible children's movie, but I'm not surprised if Disney comes out with one that's, that's more <laughs> It's not now. surprising, right? Yeah. But but it is ridiculous. Um, drones do look different. They have bigger eyes. They've got a more rounded uh, uh, backside because they don't have a pointy stinger. Um, anyway, you can actually handle a drone and, and they're, they can't hurt you. And so it's kind of fun. But that's... Pretty much their whole purpose. The females actually kick them out of the hive as winter approaches because they are useless to the hive, and all they are is an extra mouth to feed. So all the men get kicked out. It's the old die in the winter ultimate matriarchal society. Yeah, so That's why stay- Tesla said that the future is the bee. Oh my god! Yeah, stay <laughs> stay t- stay tuned for the next Disney movie, like the the real bee movie, like matriarchy. Where like all, all the men suck and they all die and all they're there but to do But it's is... crazy because I can't imagine anything worse than giving birth for the rest of my life that's as my does. function. Yeah. And that is all the queen does. She gets ma- she actually only gets mated uh, two to four times, like somewhere around three times in her whole life. That's, that's what to, the drone did. Try to keep this family friendly, Tina. Oh, oh, sorry. And then she goes in and she lays eggs for the rest of her life. They probably won't feature that portion on, on the new Disney movie. 
Gene. Well, and didn't the bee guy like fall in love with a human? Okay, that, admit, that sounds very I never Disney actually saw the movie <laughs> at this point. Well, no, the the, the, cra- the crazy part is, and when when we first went down to Beta Loca and Culpepper, uh, and it's pretty cool because they act she actually has a hive in the store with a, a glass frame, so you can actually like it's, it's a viewing hive or observation hive. hive, so you can actually you can actually look at that, and and it is it's fascinating to watch. But the more you learn, the more you're like. These guys, like whenever you hear people talk about like, oh, if only we could work together as a connected hive. I'm like, uh, you mean one where the dudes get thrown out in the winter and, and basically starve and freeze to death so the queen can spend her entire life, you know, make, and, and the women can work until they die? Like that's that's the hive mentality you want? Like, the way that It the, actually does sound a little bit like communism. It, I was going to say, it, it sounds, actually, sounds like the Soviet Union under Stalin. <laughs> it actually really is. And the reason why is because bees... Are they, so there is this misconception that the queen basically is the hive mind and she tells everybody what to do. She does not. Yeah. She's actually a slave to everybody else. Um, and but they all are. They are. Uh, their whole function is to make sure the hive, the community, survives. So they sacrifice their own lives for it. They do everything they can. Um, they. They live about 45 days unless they're overwintered, then it's longer. And the queen can live about three years. And so their whole function is the continuation of the hive itself. And so so it's there is no individualism there. It's all for the collective. It's, it's very much. But the problem is, is that it's not like communism because communism disincentivizes people to work and help and, and do things like that. So that would be... If Here's they were the, like communism, they'd be just like hanging out, eating the honey, and well, they, well, what would happen? No, they is wouldn't the, have any honey. The, the queen, <laughs> the queen would hoard whatever honey was left, and then like randomly kill workers if they and then ultimately you know, didn't produce no enough bees. honey, and yeah. then they would blame drones for it. But there, there are some very hotly contested debates back and forth with various portions of of the oh, bee that, community. That's been the most fascinating thing for me is like sitting back and watching like the factions. Yeah. within the bee community, especially dealing with like mites and, you know, should you use essential oils versus should you actually like there treat is, with like there pesticides? There is a bee group that I'm a part of that, and I'm just an observer right now. So <laughs> I just kind of stalk the page, but um, I love reading all the, all of people's experiences, but in the group rules, you know, when you become part mm. of, of a group on Facebook. When you become part oh of Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> Um, Christian so, with the puns. I know, man. right? He's so punny. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I just totally derailed everything. Uh, <laughs> this whole thing is going downhill. Oh my quick. gosh! Well, anyway, one of the issues is uh, they said any mention to using essential oils or or naturalistic methods for getting rid of mites on the bees will cause you to be banned from this group. I mean, immediately wow. post taken down. Banned. That's how serious they are about it. They will it. straight up Jack Dorsey you. If That's you, right. Uh, and the, but then the other side is like, wait until oh, Elon no. Musk gets a hold of that beak. <laughs> but the but then the other side will say, oh, you're using a pesticide to kill the bug on the bug. And when you say it like that, you're kind of going, ooh, that's risky. Uh, so it is. So here's here's you're the, really threading a needle here. So here's the question everybody wants to know: If you have a hive of bees, how much honey are we talking? None yet. I'm well, not. No, even... I'm not talking about like right now. Like on average, what do we? What can we expect for our return on investment 
in honey currency? Honestly, I am not sure because most people do more than one hive. Um, We're but doing two. We are going to, we'll be doing two. I'm not sure if we'll actually get honey this year because you do have to save enough honey for the bees so that they can survive the winter. So how many hours you do you only have take to spend what's with extra? A week? Not very much. Yeah. No, I, I, right now I have to feed them because it's a new bee package and they need, they need to be fed because they're building out their comb inside. Um, and so once they're done building that out, I can probably remove the feeder around what, June. What, is, what does a new hive of bees eat? Well, it's it's literally one to one parts of sh- of sugar and water. Oh, uh, that's why you had me picking up like yeah. He, Nick went and got me colossal a bags of ton sugar. of these gigantic bags of sugar from Costco. But yeah, we got to do that. So uh, the other day when I gave him sweet and low, that was not. You didn't give them anything. <laughs> I'm the only one with a bee, bee suit in this household, and so I can't ask anybody else to go and do anything. I have not been stung yet. I can't believe it. I was expecting to get stung. I feel like that's kind of a, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to be honest, babe. I'll have more respect when there's so, some stinging involved. <laughs> okay, well, I'm also really careful because I suit up every single time. I can't believe the TikTok videos because we were sitting there watching either YouTube or TikTok, and it's that one gal, I can't remember her name. I can't remember. She's like, bees, bees, bees. And she's bees, going there bees. finding bees that have just like randomly taken over a house. And I want you to imagine pulling off the ceiling, and it is nothing but like honeycomb she's like, and millions bees of were, bees. These bees and she's were grabbing friendly. them with their bare, her bare hands and putting them in a box. I'm like, no, she goes, no. They they were they were docile. They were they were very friendly. And I was holding the bees, and I'm just going, wow, lady. Okay, we'll see about that. I'm Although here that. is a crazy fun fact that I well I don't even know if it's a fact yet. Um, <laughs> the jury's still out on it, I think. But you know how big pharma doesn't like to explore anything natural with how to deal with issues. But there is a treatment. It's a bee stinging treatment because the poison in the little sack on the stinger apparently has something in it that counteracts um, arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. And so they actually have treatments they do on their hands. So I told my mom, because my mom has really bad arthritis. Oh, so arthritis. you're going to sting her with it. I said, Mom, I heard about this. And she goes, so are we going to sting me when I get there? She's coming to visit in May. And I said, I don't, I think I would rather professionals take care of that. I'm not going to do it. Well, I just, I just want to know what Dr. Fauci thinks, because I know whenever I'm considering Mr. Science himself, any sort of medical treatment, I always consult the we science. We better find out what the science sci- says the about science. this. Yeah, when the science is not around, I well, just don't know what to do. I, I'm so glad that he's falling off the news right now. <laughs> oh, he's desperately, he's desperately trying to claw his way back. He, back keeps, he keeps going, hey, hey, maybe some lockdowns, you guys. Uh, there's this other variant. It, it, it might, we don't even know that it that it got to another person because the, the symptoms are so mild. Uh, but we may have to do lockdowns for this. You won't, you won't even know that you have it. Well, on that note, I know I am horribly terrified of anything that could be so horrendous that I wouldn't even notice I contracted it. All right. Well, that is all the time that we have on this episode of Making the Argument. I want to thank everybody for joining us for this conversation. As always, Tina, Christian, Hamilton, well done. I'm very proud of all thank of you. you. Thank you. Uh, by the way, make sure you like, subscribe, and share. If you like what we're actually doing here, if you like the topics, if you'd like to see us continue to do it, uh, then liking, sharing, and subscribing is one of the easiest ways that you can help us out and make sure that we are around here for many more years in order to make the arguments to defend a free society. I'm Nick Freitas for Making the Argument, and we'll see you next episode.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.